Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great. And every week I have the opportunity to address, through my weekly column, some news-based energy topic. Uh, the topics, the themes vary. Sometimes it's wind energy, sometimes it's solar, sometimes it's public policy. But this week, with the UN Climate Conference going on in Paris, that is, of course, the news-based topic for this week. And the whole climate change debate is very important to the subject of energy as it seeks to totally transform the way energy is generated and transmitted, uh, distributed is perhaps the better word, uh, on a global basis. And because of that, the whole climate change debate is very important to the energy topic. This week, I was delighted to have some assistance with my column from a good friend, Bob Inlick. Now, Bob and I spent hours together for several years. Every Tuesday morning for 30 minutes, we chatted on a program that has since been discontinued, but the show was called News New Mexico, and it was heard throughout the state of New Mexico, and Bob was the co-host of it. But Bob is more than a radio co-host, as he has a long career history in the field of meteorology, which we'll let Bob tell us about, because he's going to be our guest today for our first two segments. In our third segment, we're going to have an on-the-ground report from James Taylor of the Heartland Institute. And James is in Paris right now at the climate conference, the UN Climate Conference. And then our closing segment is going to be with my friend Paul Dreesen, who's going to review some of the things that have been going on uh, at the conference in Paris for us. But let's get started with our first guest, Bob Inlick. Bob, thanks for joining me today where I get to be the host and you get to be the guest. Well, that's nice, Marita. Um, yes, I was a meteorologist. I was a weather officer in the Air Force. But, you know, I'm especially uh, interested in this subject because I also, also have a degree in geology. And so... Uh, some of this stuff that is being uh, put out about the fact that uh, we are causing uh, climate change just doesn't match up with the data. And of course, I'm a data guy, a measurements guy, and people have been uh, people have been making measurements that are applicable to this very topic for hundreds of years. So we've got a lot of measurements, and uh, a lot of this stuff is hyperbole. You know, it's just hype, and uh, and the the, the facts on the ground don't match up with some of the claims that people are making. You know, and while you have an education in meteorology and geology, as you pointed out, thank you for, for clarifying that, you also obviously, from my interactions with you, have a love of history because you know uh, a lot about, you know, I know you and I have talked before about sea level rise as a topic that you're very familiar with, and say, is it ancient Rome? Oh, yeah. You know, there's, there's lots of in, information available from our history, from even from art, that shows that, uh, you know, we hear claims in the administration quite frequently that seas are, levels are rising at an unprecedented rate. Well, sea levels rise and fall all the time. And the, the fact of the matter is there's many places 
in Europe. And why do I choose Europe? Well, Europe is the place where the Romans were. And so we have records, written records, uh, and, and written structures from back in the times of the Roman Empire and, uh, and the writings about those. So we can see, for instance, um, you know, one of the people who's just gotten on board on this is uh, Pope Francis. Well, when Pope Francis flies in and out, he flies in and out of the Rome International Airport. I think it's called Fiumicino. Um, but uh, right I'll have to trust airport, you on that one. Yeah, right next to that airport are two of the ports of ancient Rome. And uh, those ports are on the Tiber River. And uh, you can see that the sea level was much higher then because you could, you could see maps of, uh, of where these ports are and where the, where the uh, Tyrrhenian Sea is. And now it's two miles to the sea. Well, the only way that could happen is if sea level was significantly higher then than it is now. And we can see things like uh, there's, a, there's a painting uh, attributed to, uh, 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 to one of the old uh, masters <laughs> uh, called, uh, called the Battle of Ostia. And you can see where the sea level was, and it matches up with the, with the maps and the buildings that are there even today. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of hooey that uh, it's been, people are talking about. But it's obvious to me that when the Little Ice Age came about, which is around 1308 to around the uh, late 1700s, sea levels actually fell, and now they're rising again. And we have nothing to do with that. Yeah, certainly when you look at that history, uh, you know, and I, I have learned this from you, but I don't hear anyone else talking about, for example, you know, where the airport was and, you know, not where it was then because, of course, it wasn't there, but where, where that land was and how that has changed. And it's so clear when you look at um, the maps and things from that era as you've taught me to do. Yeah, well, you know, there's another one, you know, Marita, I've been very blessed in my life. Uh, I can remember when I was a kid, sort of wide-eyed about Europe. And uh, I was stationed in Europe for three years with the Air Force. And, I, and, and then I, the Army sent me there to train troops uh, for a number of times. So, uh, you know, I've been, to, I've been to Europe quite a bit. One of the places, one of our favorite places, is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So you can look at the history and you can see where Pisa's ships you know, that was the, the backbone of that city-state. You can see where the ships used to tie up. Well, now it's seven miles uh, to the sea. So how could that happen? Well, the only way that it could happen is sea level fell, and now it's rising again. And there's other geological information that, that shows you that uh, sea level was considerably higher for thousands of years, and then it fell during the Little Ice Age. And, of course, we know from some of what we call our proxy uh, measurements, and that's uh, the ice cores, that, uh, that actually uh, the temperatures fell significantly in the Little Ice Age and was coldest in the last 10,000 years. Of course, sea levels fell, and now they're coming back again. But they have not reached the, uh, the, the, the height that they had uh, during uh, the, the Roman warm period and the medieval warm period, Maria. So why does nobody talk about this? Well, I think it's because most uh, people 
who are, and I've known some of these people, who are uh, the editors of papers and things like that, they have no science background, nor do they have the intellectual curiosity. You know, they say, well, you know, there's this grand consensus. Well, that consensus, that's another bunch of hooey. Uh, the, the best, that's not science. That's not science. Uh, and and actually, um, we found out back in the time of Galileo that, uh, you know, he made his observations of Mars, and every time Mars came around, it backed up, and he said, hey, fellas, uh, there's no way that if we're at the center of the solar system, or at uh, of the planetary system, that uh, the Mars backs up every two years when it's coming around in its orbit. The only way that that could compute is if the sun is the center. And, of course, that went against the, uh, the, the dogma of the day. Uh, and uh, and he, was, uh, he was put under house arrest for having such uh, heretical thoughts. And that's the way people t uh, talk about us scientists, as we are heretics. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Paul Dreesen. I know him. Uh, and, uh, of course, I know James Schindler, too. But, uh, but people in the popular press refer to us as heretics because what we say violates their belief and it is belief and it is a re religion to them this this idea of man caused global warming but you can just look at the data and and it's very obvious that uh, that the present warm period is totally unimpressive in its amount of warmth and you can look back in history and you can look back at these sea levels and you can see that it was warmer 3500 years ago in the Minoan warm period uh, it was warmer at the time of Christ, in the time of the Roman Empire, 2,000 years ago. It was warmer than it is today, back in the medieval warm period. And, uh, and, and these things are very obvious when you look at the history and, and see uh, things that were written down back in those times. Uh, it, it's just very obvious in, in terms of the sea level and the temperature. There's another thing, Marita, and that is that actually... Warmer is better for people. Right now, just last summer, there was an article in The Lancet, which is the British medical journal, that said something like 17 times more people freeze to death from the cold than die from the heat. Well, that would imply that uh, it's not warm enough. Uh, and so people are talking about catastrophic warming. Well, catastrophic warming uh, just is not happening. Uh, there's another set of measurements that gives us the same information. People might know that NASA flies these satellites, uh, and the satellites measure the temperature. We hear about greenhouse warming. Well, we've got measurements in the greenhouse from the NASA satellites, and they show for the last 18 years and nine months there's been fluctuations of temperature, but there's been no warming. And the fluctuations have to do with this El Nino and La Nina cycle. And if there's a volcano, we can see some cooling associated with that. We can see these wiggles in the temperature, but we don't see a greenhouse warming signature or any warming, at least for the last 18 years and nine months, Marita. Well, we've only got about a minute and a half left in this segment, and in our next segment we're going to talk more specifically about what we addressed in my column this week. But in this quick time we have, can you explain for our listeners 
when you say there has been no warming, how is it then that we keep seeing in the media that 2015 is the warmest year on record? Can you explain that? I think I can. Um, there are two sets of measurements. One set of measurements is at the surface. The other set of measurements is from the satellites. The satellites are much better in one sense, is that they are closer to being global. But what happens is um, that many of the measurements that people are talking about are from cities. And in the cities, we have what's called the urban heat element effect. And if you've got a car with a dash thermometer, you can look and see as you drive into town, the temperatures in the center of town are warmer than they are in the outskirts. I've measured it a number of times here in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and the center of town is four degrees Fahrenheit warmer than the outskirts. I mean, it's a very repeatable phenomenon. So I think that is a good part of the reason that we have that difference. Because we we often hear, I mean, people that discuss this topic from your side say there hasn't been warming, but yet we see these other things. And I understand that there's uh, we're, we're about out of time for this segment, but I understand that there's a uh, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests or violations uh, surrounding this topic, and we'll 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 uh, start off with that when we come back, and then we're going to go specifically to the president's speech uh, at the opening of the UN Climate Conference in Paris. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We're talking with Bob Inlick, and we're specifically discussing, we've been talking about sea level rise and temperatures from satellites and so forth. And, Bob, do you have any information, before we went to the break, I I just kind of threw out there the issue of uh, these records from NOAA, the satellite records not being released. Have you been following that story at all? Well, a little bit, and it gets a little bit technical, but basically what it involves is the fact that um, I pointed out that for 18 years and nine months we've had no increase in temperature in uh, in the satellite record, and uh, so that's called, called the pause, and uh, 
a paper was sent out this summer, uh, was released, and the author on it is the head of the National Climate Data Center. His name's Tom Carl. And what he said is, well, we reanalyzed the data and find out that there is no uh, pause in temperature. And what it is, it has to do with the measurements of the water temperature. And water temperatures are measured um, through, uh, there's a series of floats. There are moored buoys, and those have um, a, a reasonably uh, short history. And then we've got measurements from uh, ships. And the ship's temperatures used to be that they would throw a bucket overboard, haul in water, and then stick a thermometer in the water, and then say, say that's the temperature. Well, now what they do is they measure the temperature as they're ingesting the seawater uh, into the turbine of the, uh, of the pummered vessel. Well, and so they're using the turbine inlet temperature as the seawater temperature. Well, you know, that's just corrupt because the boat is warmer than the water in many, in most cases. Uh, so, so that, it's sort of like the urban heat island. The temperature of the inlet of a boat is warmer than the outside air, so uh, the outside water. Excuse me. Um, so they got to they, they so then they start fudging it, and that's just not science. They have they have corrupted the process. So uh, Lamar Smith, who's head of one of the committees in the House, said, "Hey, we want to see your emails back and forth before you sent that paper out." And then and then there's a big flop about it. So, but uh, I think that's just poor science. Uh, we do have reasonably good measurements uh, from the buoys and the uh, and the, well, the floats are called the Argo floats. And uh, so, anyhow, that, I, th I hope that answers it. And maybe we'll want to talk more about what Mr. Obama said in Paris. Yeah, because I, I have not followed the whole uh, kind of controversy surrounding that. I need to get educated on it, so I appreciate you yeah, at least giving us that little hint of what the story is about. So, yeah, let's, let's jump now uh, specifically to the, the climate conference going on right now in Paris and specifically what President Obama said at his, in his opening speech that I know you listen to very carefully. Yeah, so one of his statements was, you know, well, I went to Alaska last summer, and I saw a man cause climate change firsthand, uh, and, uh, and I'm an expert on this. Well, maybe not so much. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so one of the things he said is the sea is already swallowing villages. Well, he didn't say which village, but during his, his trip, uh, there's a village called Kivalina, and people have been talking about Kivalina for a long time. Kivalina is a village um, in Alaska right on the water, and it, it's on what we call a, uh, a spit of land. A spit of land is a barrier beach or a barrier island, and this has been in, uh, occupied by the, uh, by the natives up there for several hundred years. But... Now, I see I grew up in New Jersey, and, and I've seen that these spits of land, these barrier beaches, anytime there's a storm, uh, the, you know, the, the sand is moved around by the, by the ocean. And so, um, so he says the sea is already swallowing villages. Those barrier beaches are not permanent. I would say that the best word we could use to describe them is ephemeral. 
Uh, and there's a very good example uh, for people who have been to the East Coast. Uh, the Outer Banks of North Carolina is, is another example of a barrier beach. And um, when it was built, um, Hatteras Light, uh, it's, an, it's an iconic light, and it has the, the spiral uh, black and white uh, pattern on it. I've been there. And they had to move it. Well, they had to move it to the west towards uh, towards the North Carolina mainland because the entire barrier beach is moving. They moved it then back, I think, when Bill Clinton was president, and they planned it for a long, for a long time. But those beaches move. They're not permanent. And uh, the fact that they had to move the Hatteras Light, uh, if you can go to, to the Park Service website and say, hey, we moved, the, uh, we moved Hatteras Light, and they say, well, this is part of a thing that's been going on for the last 10,000 years. Uh, well, if it's been going on for the last 10,000 years, we don't have anything to do with it. That's just the way these uh, offshore barrier beaches are. So for the president to claim that the sea is, is uh, swallowing villages up in Alaska and it's all our fault, that's just not true. The, the, certainly, those people are living in Kivalina in a very precarious place, but our use of uh, fossil fuels does not have anything to do with the fact that they've got a village in a very precarious uh, uh, place. Uh, there's another claim that was made, is that glaciers are melting at a pace unprecedented in modern times. Uh, yeah, before, before we go to that, Bob, before we go to that, explain the tide gauges and what they show uh, in the Kivalina area. Yeah, well, um, the, the tide gauges are these floats. Um, you know, the, the most common example I can think of is like an, the float in a toilet tank. So as the water goes up and down, the float goes up and down, and it moves as some sort of an indicator, and you turn that into a permanent record. And there are a number of these that are operated by NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And uh, if you go to a search on NOAA tides and currents, and you can get to a map that shows the rate of sea level rise and fall and the location of each of these, it's very easy to find if you just go to the tides and currents web page. And you can see the record of uh, sea level over the last uh, about 150 years. Many of the earliest tide gauges were put in just before the Civil War, so maybe 1840, 1850, something like that. And if you look at, for instance, San Francisco, California, or if you look at the Battery in New York City, uh, or choose anyone you want to, if we are affecting the rate of sea level rise, the rate should have increased, but it's a straight line. And no matter where you go, it's a straight line. Uh, so the, the, and there's, a, a, there's a, a couple of fellows, Houston and Dean, published in the journal Coastal Research. Is, guess what? The, the warming in the last 100 years has not produced an acceleration of sea level rise. So the acceleration of sea level rise should be the marker of our changing the rate of sea level rise. And if you look at the data, and I, you know, I say that a lot, but, you know, with the, with the Internet, you can just look this stuff up. I mean, it's right there. Yeah, it's easy to see when you know where, where to look for it, as you pointed it out to me. Now, you were going heading into talking about glaciers, but I wanted to point out, because you told me, uh, and frankly, I looked at the website, that you linked 
two for me, and I'm not a scientist. I couldn't tell what all it said, so I just have to trust you on that. But you said that in the area around Kivalina that there, there is not sea level rise, and we certainly don't have uh, villages sinking into the ocean. That's true, you know. Uh, as a matter of fact, what's interesting is that we know uh, that uh, 20,000 years ago, uh, there was a great amount of glaciers that covered a lot of North America. And um, from the West Coast, say from Seattle North, uh, the, there was so much um, ice on the land with the glaciers that since the glaciers melted, the, the, the land is actually rebounding. Also in the Great Lakes, uh, the Great Lakes, uh, after that, the glaciers melted, they are actually rising in the same way in the East Coast. So, uh, you know, he goes up to Alaska. Well, there's lots of parts of Alaska where the sea level is actually falling because the land is rising quicker than the, than the rate of sea level rise that, uh, that we see in uh, maybe the rest of the, rest of the world. So, uh, you know, this notion that our use of fossil fuels is affecting this and, uh, and that we can change our habits and, and not have flooding in Miami at high tide. That's just, that's just crazy. Uh, now, let's just mention that. You, we've seen sometimes in the AP they carry stories about, oh, man, uh, you know, the, the, these, uh, these spring tides, these king tides, um, the uh, salt water comes out of the sewers. And, uh, and that's from sea level rise, and that's all our fault. Well, um, all up and down the East Coast and all the way to, um, to the Gulf Coast of Texas, all of that's what's called the coastal plain. Those um, lands are not solid rock. It's what we call unconsolidated sediment. Um, so... Uh, and, and that's very common, like Long Island, that's uh, unconsolidated. So the New, New Jersey coastal plain uh, uh, around uh, Cape Hatteras and down to Miami, all that's unconsolidated sediment. So we've got a habit of, uh, you know, we, we have people move down there and we drill wells to, uh, to pump water out of the ground so people can have um, running water in their houses. Well... The, the truth of the matter is when you pump water out of unconsolidated sediments, the sediments fall. And, you know, they talk a lot about sea level rise, but they never talk about the fact that we are contributing to the change between the sea and the land by pumping water out of it. And Miami is a splendid example because a little over 100 years ago there was almost nothing here, and I think now they got 3 million people or something like that. But, you know, there's a lot of people pumping water out to uh, – to have a nice life down there. Well, you know, there are some consequences to that. And, uh, yeah, and that's, not, and that's not caused by the burning of fossil fuels. It is human activity, but it's not caused by the burning of fossil fuels. We've only got about 45 seconds left, Bob, and we haven't really gotten to glaciers. Can you, can you give us a quick summary there? Well, the president has made a statement that glaciers are melting in a pace unprecedented in modern times. Well, we've got people who've been measuring uh, the glaciers, uh, all different kinds of people, and we've got a very good record. And uh, what the president said is not correct. Um, the, like the Exit Glacier, 
he uh, he visited in Alaska. Um, Exit Glacier's been reading, re, retreating, but the maximum retreat rate was 300 feet a year in 1918. That's back in World War One. That's well before the widespread use of fossil fuels. So Exit Glacier last year uh, retreated at only 187 feet. So the glaciers are not melting at a pace at a pace unprecedented in modern times, and the information is right there in the National Park Service web pages. I mean, some, some of this stuff is just that, they, that the president says, I don't know how he can make these statements when it's very obvious. If you go look and check on it, you can find out that the statements are wrong. Yeah. We're out of time, Bob. I appreciate it. It's a fascinating discussion. I'm glad I booked you for two segments. But for our listeners, I hope that you'll check out my column on this fault found in the facts on the president's presentation in Paris, where you can get the links to these websites that Bob is talking about. Bob, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF. A nonprofit organization is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about climate change, but specifically the U.N. Climate Change Conference that's going on right now in Paris. And I'm delighted to have with us James Taylor from the Heartland Institute. And he is the Senior Fellow on Environmental Policy. And he's there in Paris and is going to give us a first-hand report about what's really happening. So, James, thanks for joining us once again on America's Voice for Energy. My pleasure. It's always wonderful speaking with you, Marita. Well, I so appreciate your efforts, and particularly the Heartland Institute, in uh, you know the focus on climate, sh- the climate change narrative, or the faulty climate change narrative, as I pointed out in my column this week. Have you been in Paris uh, since the start of the conference? 
Not since the very start, but I arrived on Wednesday, which would have been the third, so a couple days uh, after President Obama spoke. Uh, but I don't think I missed much. Um, in fact, I, I don't think I would have missed much if I arrived today, which I think is a very good thing. <laughs> so, so expand on that. I'm glad to hear that as well, that you haven't missed much. Now, of course, my column this week uh, specifically dealt with some of the uh, – distortions that President Obama had in his uh, overtime speech at the opening of the conference. But uh, you say not much has happened. What do, you, what do you mean? Well, we heard so much over the past few months about how this is going to be a make-or-break event, uh, how the nations of the world are going to have to come together and reach a binding agreement now or it simply won't happen. And, and I think that's true because President Obama has more political capital, I believe, than any president uh, since at least Ronald Reagan and, and likely than any president that will follow for quite some time. If this is such a high priority for him and he can't get the deal, the restrictions imposed upon the United States and internationally enforceable, if he can't do it, nobody else can. Uh, so what's happened here uh, during the first week or so of, of the conference is uh, you have Obama who would like to give the radical left everything they want, but he also realizes there are restrictions. He, he's not a dictator, and he's not a king without a parliament. So what the you think he realizes nations, that? <laughs> what, the, uh, what the developing nations are, are looking for is uh, ever-increasing amounts of money handed over to them, first and foremost, which has nothing to do with climate. And next they want ever-increasing restrictions on Western-style democracies, even though the Western-style democracies... Uh, emit only a very small percentage of the uh, total global carbon dioxide emissions. Now, Obama realizes he can go to a certain extent, but once he gets to the point of getting anywhere near the amount of money that the developing nations want, uh, once he gets near the point of restricting U.S. Uh, carbon dioxide emissions far beyond what he's already done, and most importantly of all, the developing nations are insisting, absolutely insisting, that any agreement must be internationally legally enforceable. Uh, that's something that the American people are not going to stand for. We're not going to hand over our sovereignty to the United Nations, and moreover, not just the United Nations, but in, uh, United Nations environmental wackos. So that's why there hasn't been anything accomplished, because uh, he's trying to tell them, look, I can only go so far, or, or else I'm going to get no traction in the United States. I must have Senate approval for any treaty. Anything that's not a treaty is not binding. He'd love to do more, but nothing's happened yet. Well, I'm pleased to hear from you that, that apparently he realizes that he can only go so far and, uh, and therefore getting a legally binding treaty is going to be difficult. Let me, I want to ask you a question. I've not been able to get an answer from anyone um, that, you know, because for me, well, I deal with climate change. I deal with a lot of energy issues, so I'm not exclusively following this uh, topic. But I've asked others that are far more knowledgeable on this issue than I am, and have not been able to get an answer. And you've maybe sort of answered my question in your comments here. But they say that this is the final time, and they reference Copenhagen, uh, but and saying, well, you know, we didn't get it done there. We've got to get it done this year. But they have a conference every single year. So what was so pivotal, pivotal about Copenhagen versus the other annual conferences? And what's, why is this year the year that it has to get done? And then probably part B of my question is, assuming they fail, which I believe they will fail to get this agreement, as you've mentioned, um, will they then give up and say, oh, well, we failed? Or are they going to come right back at it next year? Well, that's a great question. Regarding the first part, uh, 
Copenhagen being their last chance, last best opportunity, that's the same rhetoric they use in the underlying global warming debate where they'll say, if we don't severely restrict emissions here in the United States this year or immediately, we're reaching the tipping point. We, we have to act now, and five years it'll be too late. Five years goes, and then they say, no, we have to do it now. And, and yeah, it's just, it's just a matter of trying to apply pressure for political purposes. I think this so there's actually different. nothing different about this year from last year. Well, well, I would say there was nothing different about Copenhagen. I think the difference this year is, as I mentioned earlier, this is President Obama's last year in office. Uh, I think after this, the only way that they can get something done like this would be to have a Republican like a John McCain elected to office who will bring along a lot of Republicans out of nothing more than blind party loyalty to follow their leader. But a John McCain, even a John McCain, probably wouldn't go nearly as far as Barack Obama in terms of not just agreeing to these carbon dioxide restrictions, but agreeing to carbon dioxide restrictions that would severely punish the United States relative to the rest of the world as well as in a vacuum. So I think that the difference here and the reason why they're probably correct that this really is their, their last best chance is because Obama term expires this year. Yeah, and so and so then part B is, will they, assuming they fail this year, will they just come back yet again next year? Oh, they'll come back, and, and I don't think they're ever going to give up, just as I don't think the global warming movement's ever going to give up. And, and sometimes I hear from folks who say, James, um, we've been on this for a while. Can't we just move on? We should move on to other issues that are important for free market advocates. But the problem is we have to win each and every time. All, all the global warming alarmists have to do is win once. If they can just win once and impose these massive carbon dioxide restrictions on our economy, we're done. We have to win each and every year, and they realize that. So they're not going to stop because it doesn't matter whether it's now, next year, or 10 years from now. They're just looking to win once, and, uh, and they'll be back next year and the year after. But it's going to be much harder for them without uh, the radical and politically powerful President Obama sitting in the, uh, in the Oval Office here in the United States. So how have you all, uh, you climate skeptics, been received there in Paris? Well, it's, it's interesting that I think there was a lot of despondency from the global warming alarmists realizing that as much as Obama and the media had built this up and tried to gin up momentum like this is an inevitable occurrence and this is a wonderful thing, as we got close to the, uh, to the conference itself, there was the realization that uh, perhaps this isn't going to result in a major agreement. And so you're seeing a lot less enthusiasm on the trains, really? uh, on the buses, to the, to the conference uh, uh, meeting venue itself in which most of the people on public transportation going to these particular stops were the attendees, largely from non-governmental organizations, environmental activist groups. There was no outrage and anger to be expressed at you know, energy companies or skeptics, nor was there enthusiasm or optimistic talk. They just stood there glumly looking out the window. At the, uh, at the site of the talks itself, the media talks about 40,000 people. That's garbage. If there's 10% of that, I'd be surprised. Maybe there are 40,000 people in Paris who are taking advantage of a chance to holiday in a, in a very vibrant, exciting city, at least what would normally be a very vibrant, exciting city. Inside the, the actual center, you might see a few thousand, and they're spread out uh, most, most sessions. For example, we attended a National Re Natural Resources Defense Council uh, press, brief, press briefing and information session. There were maybe a dozen people uh, at the Climate Action Network event. There were even less than that at a meeting for indigenous peoples expressing their concern, there might have been five. So really? People, yeah, despite what the media wants us to believe, this isn't some powerful 
uh, coming together of uh, people concerned about the fate of the planet and demanding action and showing their strength and power. That's just, that. that's a predetermined narrative. There's nothing like that at all going on here. You know, I saw a picture um, of the room that Al Gore was going to be speaking in, and uh, frankly, it had less seats in it than the room that I spoke in for the Heartland Institute a year ago. Right, and uh, Jim Lakely and I, Jim Lakely is the Heartland Institute Director of Communications. He and I attended that talk. We arrived in that room. It was funny. It was made out of raw particle wood composite. It was about the ugliest thing you can imagine. We arrived nearly an hour early to make sure we could get seats. Well, we were one of the first ones there. We sat front center, at least for the first room they were going to have it in. Uh, five minutes before the schedule started the talk, they moved the room, which meant people like us that waited forever and got front row seats, because the door was in the back, we were the last to get out and the last to get into the new room. But anyway, and why, the why did they have to move it? Why did they move it from one room to the other? Because they were amateurish and unorganized. Uh, it, it, it was the most pathetically amateurish uh, event I've attended. I, I've attended it wasn't. It wasn't rate. because they needed more chairs. No, no. I, and if it was, it would be. I, eventually, they, they filled more seats than probably they had in that room. But when they moved it, there were still seats available. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and they didn't tell us until five minutes before uh, the talk was about to begin. But the point was, even for Al Gore speaking, which one would think would be the or one of the highlights of the talks, sure. uh, there were at most uh, a few hundred people, at most. So when you hear this 40,000 people stuff, that's ridiculous. He drew substantially less people than attend most of our, our Heartland International Conference on Climate Change events. So you're right on that. Interesting. So what do you predict is going to happen? My prediction will be at the end of the week, there will still be a large divide between what the developing nations have been demanding, ever-increasing money, more severe restrictions on the United States and Western democracies, and international authority to, uh, to enforce that in the United States and elsewhere. So what they will do is they will agree, they'll put out a statement noting all their points of agreement, which will be shallow and meaningless, They'll talk about how they're so very close, and they'll keep working on it. And they'll do their very best to put a sunshiny face on it. And, uh, and although it'll be glum news for global warming activists, it'll be fantastic news uh, for energy consumers, which means everybody uh, all over the world. It means they're, uh, if this is the case, they're not going to sentence us to unnecessarily prohibitively expensive energy that's going to sap our incomes, destroy our standard of living, and make it much more expensive to buy goods and services throughout the economy. If they were to succeed in doing that, people would have less money for quality education, quality health care, quality housing, quality nutrition, uh, all the things that make our lives happier, healthier, and longer lasting. So fortunately, they seem to be failing in that regard. It may be glum news for the bureaucrats who've traveled here to Paris. It's fantastic news for everybody else on the planet. Yeah, we've just got about 45 seconds left. How does where, where does India play into this? What's their attitude right now? India is a very interesting case because they are pushing hard to get uh, quite a bit of money from the Western democracies. They are not accepting any carbon dioxide restrictions themselves. And, of course, I don't blame them for doing so because they need affordable sure. energy to lift their people uh, into wealth. Uh, they, they had one of their ministers was actually part of the Natural Resources Defense Council event that I attended. And uh, they made a big show about how they're going to have more uh, carbon dioxide-free energy. But when I pressed him on it, very respectfully, when I pressed him on it, he admitted that nuclear will uh, be a large part of that. And they're looking to expand nuclear power throughout the developing world. NRDC did not like to hear that.
Yeah, it's interesting how how uh, the people who want to li- limit CO2 shun nuclear, which is the only viable option uh, to achieve their goal and power the world, but they don't want to hear that. Right, and I thought it was great to hear this from the Indian minister at a Natural Resources Defense Council event. I thought that was fantastic that I was able to pull that out of him at that particular venue. Well, congratulations to you on that. James Taylor, I appreciate you taking your time out of your busy uh, trip there and look forward to a concluding report when it's over. A pleasure and a joy to speak with you, as always, Marita. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, and we'll be right back with America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing segment of today's edition of America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking about climate change and specifically what's going on in Paris at the UN Climate Conference. In our last segment, we talked with James Taylor from the Heartland Institute, who's there on the ground in Paris and gave us kind of a a first-hand report of the tone, the attitude uh, of the people that are there. And now we're going to talk with my good friend, Paul Dreesen, who is a senior policy analyst for the Heartland Institute, for CFACT, Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, and also for CORE. So Paul is very uh, well-connected, but he has just written a piece published on townhall.com called More Outrages and Insanities in Paris. So Paul, thanks for joining me today, and I'm anxious to hear about the outrages and insanities in Paris. Thanks for having me back, Marita. Always a treat to have my good friends, and today's show is all full of my good friends, so I appreciate you joining me. So what have you observed going on in Paris? Well, the insanities just never seem to end. First of all, we've got some 40,000 people attending this conference, this Gab Fest, and they're almost all alarmists. They've almost all got their time and lavish expenses 
for five-star hotels and restaurants paid by us taxpayers or their corporate cronies. But And there's still there's some of us that have managed to get over there, paying our own way, uh, CFACT, Heartland, CEI, a number of other groups. But these guys, these alarmists, want to silence the few dangerous man-made global warming skeptic voices that have been able to get over there. Heaven so forbid that we should have freedom of expression or freedom of speech. Right. The First Amendment does not apply on college campuses or at climate conferences, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, and they want to revoke our conference credentials so that we can't even show up again. And then they want to prosecute us as racketeers and climate criminals. You know, the reality is the real criminals are the alarmists. I think they're committing crimes against humanity and our planet because, well, let's cut through all the the small crimes like uh, converting habitat and croplands into palm oil and ethanol plantations and wind farms and slaughtering birds and bats by the millions. The real impact is on the poorest people on the planet who are dying literally by the millions from lung and intestinal and other diseases that are due really to an absence of electricity, refrigeration, and safe drinking water. And the alarmists, the climate alarmists, are trying to use global climate chaos as a an excuse, a reason to justify all their anti-fossil fuel policies and programs. Uh, I guess, thankfully, the developing countries, those poor countries, are not going to have any more of that, and they're building coal-fired power plants at an incredible pace. They're looking at something like 2,500 new coal-fired power plants built around the world over the next decade or so. So you know, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that, Paul, in my column this week, uh, which is fault found in the facts in the president's presentation in Paris. And uh, one of the things I mentioned in there is, is that particularly China and India are building new coal-fired power plants at an alarming rate. And I, um, in that column, had a link to a, a recent news story about something, I believe it's that uh, China's got 155 new coal-fired power plants uh, in the works. Yeah, it's something like that. It's well into the hundreds for the two of those countries. I wouldn't say it's at an alarming rate unless you happen to be a climate alarmist. It's (laughs) at a good rate, a very positive rate, if you're trying to get electricity to people uh, and improve their lives and living standards. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of pollution associated with those power plants because they don't they aren't they aren't spending the extra money to put decent scrubber systems or any scrubber systems on them but they'll get around to that eventually just the way we did and england did and other developed countries did uh but to call carbon dioxide emissions pollution or carbon pollution is just a flat-out myth a lie a fabrication of deliberate misrepresentation. I mean, after all, carbon dioxide is plant food, plant fertilizer. And sure. the more that, that you've got in the air, the faster and better plants grow. Yeah, so, you know, what do you see as um, really what what's happening so far in Paris? Well, I, I think, number one, it's going to come down to none of these countries, none of the developing countries will stand for having some binding standards uh, or goals or whatever you want to call them for carbon emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, let me make that clear, down the road a few years. They will be happy to have some non-binding uh, objectives that they will hopefully get to within the next 
10, 15, 20 years and start reducing their carbon dioxide emissions once they've got all those power plants built and their people are up to normal living standards that we enjoy here in the West. But the second thing that's on the table here besides binding versus non-binding and time frames is money. Uh, the Malaysian representative to COP21, the conference of parties over there in Paris, number 21, has said, you developed countries grew to this level of prosperity because you burned fossil fuels at an unabated rate. You created the climate problem. And India's environment minister has said, the bill for climate action for the world is not just $100 billion a year. It's in the trillions of dollars per year. So they, if they're going to play the game and sign any kind of agreement over there in Paris, they want money and lots of it. And the funny thing is, uh, the real irony, the insanity of it, is what are we talking about? The bill for what problem exactly? You know, if you take, look at White House press releases, climate conference speeches and rants and computer models, they're not evidence. And especially they're not evidence when the real world events out there completely contradict the climate hype, whether it's temperatures or ice caps or sea levels uh, or acidic oceans or hurricanes and tornadoes, none of those natural events, these extreme weather and other events, are following the global warming script, the computer-modeled scenarios for disasters. They're not happening. So what's all this consternation, all these demands for money all about? Yeah, I mean, that's that, That's the big point. In my column this week, I quote uh, Christina Figueres, or however you pronounce her last name. Uh, and talking about, you know, that what this is about is totally changing the, the world system. Yeah, the world's economic system and redistributing our wealth, taking it away from currently rich developed countries from what I call the FRCs, the formerly rich countries, <laughs> giving it to all these other countries uh, by the trillions of dollars. And meanwhile, they want to decarbonize us, deindustrialize us, and de-develop us, uh, take us down a peg. They want to increase their uh, fossil fuel use, improve their living standards and their economic growth while they drag ours down. And in the meantime, we're supposed to be forking over $100 billion or more a year. Uh, that's really $100 billion is just for starters. After uh, 15 years or 10 years, they want the United States alone to fork over about $167 billion a year, one-tenth of our economy. But, of course, our economy is going to be down, down, down all the time because all the restrictions that Obama and the U.N. want to put on our fossil fuel use. So what do you think is really going to be the end results of all this? I mean, when the, when the conference closes, what is it closed, uh, December 11 or December 12? Yeah, something in there, and that assumes that they come to some kind of agreement that they yeah. can all say, hey, we've achieved something monumental here, uh, unprecedented uh, treaty to protect the climate from the ravages of, cli of fossil fuels, and then we can all go home until we come back to some other fancy location with five-star hotels in a year or two. Uh, so that's kind of where it's going to be. They're, they'll make a lot of noise. I'm not sure they're going to come up with much of anything. I can't imagine 
in the U.S. Congress is going to agree to fork over even a hundred dollars or a million dollars to these guys. It all goes into the Swiss bank accounts of the ruling elites anyway. It'll never go to the poor people in any of those countries. Uh, and it will come with strings that say you can't build coal-fired power plants, which they're not going to agree to. Uh, so I think they'll have a bunch of rah-rah, we did something, now let's go home and be happy, but nothing binding. Uh, I think ultimately what you're looking at is this theory, this claim, this delusion, or what I call the money-grubbing, power-grabbing pretense behind this entire operation over there in Paris, and that is that somehow if we reduce carbon dioxide emissions just in the developing countries of developed countries of course while they go unabated in the developing countries somehow we can hold projected global temperature increases to about two degrees celsius and that somehow that's three and a half degrees fahrenheit uh and somehow we we will have a thermostat for the planet that we can control the temperature and and weather just by controlling carbon dioxide it's, it's just illusory delusional uh so, yeah i was gonna say it's pretty audacious to think that that we can do that yeah uh, so and especially if it's only the developed countries that are supposed to do reduce their emissions and meanwhile the Developed, developing countries are going to keep increasing theirs, and atmospheric carbon dioxide levels are going to soar even higher. <laughs> That's the other laugh about this whole thing. Carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the Earth's atmosphere. Argon, which you never even hear about, is 25 times more, almost 0.93%. Oxygen is 20%, but this little 0.04%, 400 parts per million, of carbon dioxide is supposed to be Earth's thermostat. It, it's just insane. Well, of course, if, you know, argon, they can't, you can't control the world by saying argon is scary. Right, exactly. Or even water vapor, because how, how are you going to control water vapor? And yet, water vapor is the biggie in greenhouse gas land. And it's the only greenhouse gas they never want to talk about. Yeah. So. Well, it's going to be interesting to see. I've got we've got about another well, only about a minute left. I have a question, and I asked James Taylor before you uh, this question, and I'm sure your answers will not contradict. But I'm interested in your opinion. You know, they keep saying that we have to do it this year. This year is important, and this is, and they also always reference Copenhagen. So what I'm confused on is what was so important about Copenhagen in this year that is different from the intervening years because they do this every year. Well, Copenhagen was important because it was a disaster. Nothing got done. So now they're saying, well, we're at a tipping point. If we don't do something this year, we're never going to get our act together, and the earth will just explode or implode or go into uh, a runaway global warming. You know, we've been hearing this for how long? I mean, pre-1976 yeah. or so, it was runaway global cooling caused by fossil fuel use. Then it was runaway global warming. Then it was climate change. Now it's extreme weather events. But 
the bottom line is always we got to get rid of fossil fuels because we hate fossil fuels and we hate the economic development that goes with them and the living standards and we just can't tolerate having the whole world trying to live at United States living standard levels. So it, 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 the, none of it makes sense. But they've got one point one point five trillion dollar industry behind them. That's all that government money, renewable energy, climate money, and so forth. And they don't want yeah. to let go of that money train. Well, we'll see what will happen. We're out of time on America's Voice for Energy. Paul Dreesen, thanks for joining me, and I hope people will tune in to townhall.com to check out your article, More Outrages and Insanities in Paris. Please join us again next week on America's Voice for Energy on America's Web Radio.